0: Yes, there is a lot of minutia, legal docs, diligence rooms, spreadsheets, models, justifying your valuation that is not that fun. But I mean, I can think of some investors that I've checked in with them every quarter for the last 10 quarters, and they just invested in my business. Like that is an existentially fun thing. Of like, okay, they weren't a believer in 2019. They weren't a believer in 2020. They were not a believer in 2021. And in 2022, they wired us cash.
1: Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. Today's hot topic is fundraising. And what could be better than talking fundraising with our favorite weird sparkling water brand, Ourobora. Bora just raised a Series A round led by City Capital, bringing their lifetime funding as a brand to $10 million. And co-founder Paul Vogie is here to share the details with us. Paul and his wife, Maddie, founded Aurobora in 2019, and they make sparkling water from herbs, fruits, and flowers for earthly tastes and heavenly feelings. They use unique ingredients like basil, cactus, and lavender for a better tasting experience, all while donating 1% of annual revenue to environmental causes via 1% for the planet. Ouroboros is one of the fastest-growing beverage brands in the country with their zero-calorie, zero-sugar, non-GMO, plant-based, and craft flavors. Listen in as Paul shares with us about Ouroboros' different funding stages from friends and family to seed rounds to the recent Series A with institutional investors, how he learned about the world of fundraising and his recommendations for getting started, the logistics behind tackling fundraising from staying organized to working as a team, to a favorite question to ask someone who says no, how he stays motivated and how they've built long-term relationships with potential investing partners along the way, the newly formed Ourobora board of directors, that's fun to say, and what that means, how Ourobora will use the funds and exciting future growth plans, and more. Plus, I loaded up the show notes with all the resources that Paul mentions. Before we hear from Paul, I want to share more info about Mondelez International's Snack Futures CoLab program because applications are currently open, and last week we had a collab alumnus on the show, Bunny James Boxes. Let's hear a quick clip from founder Lonnie about his CoLab experience.
0: I just loved how deep it went this week in CoLab. And I feel like I have a notebook full of things that I actually can take action on today. If that alone was what what CoLab was about, it would absolutely be worth it.
1: For the 2023 CoLab cohort, Mondelez International is looking for startup snack brands who are delicious and disruptive, have won the attention of retailers and consumers and have at least $1 million in annual revenue. Last cohort, three brands selected for the program were from our Startup CPG community, so this could be you. To hear the full story of the Bunny James Boxes team's CoLab experience, check out episode number 67. To learn more about CoLab after this episode, head to applycollab.com. That's apply, C-O-L-A-B.com to complete the application to be part of CoLab, or grab the link in the show notes. Now let's chat with Paul. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show today. How are you?
0: I am doing well. Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, so glad to have you here. I am currently (laughs) drinking... The ginger Meyer lemon, which is delicious, and I think you know, I thought I had a favorite Ourobor flavor, and now I'm like, well, maybe this is my new favorite. So every time I try a new one, I think I've got a new favorite. But I'm a big fan, yeah. and so it's it's an honor to have you on the on the show, and it's a it's a delightful um, can and packaging to have you know sitting next to me uh, in my office. I hope that's the
0: case. Thank you for saying that. Ginger Meyer lemon is my current favorite flavor, which oh, nice. is nice because lemongrass coconut was my favorite for. Since the since the get go, you know, for the last three years, Um, but I agree with you that it's usually a a, a doldrum day working at home at your desk, and hopefully that can can be a small source of joy. So I'm glad to hear it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know I've had listeners say like, "Man, you seem to re- like. Do you really like the products that you say you like on the show?" And I'm like, "Yes, yeah. I do. Maybe that just means I like a lot of things, but when I say I love something and I drink something, and eat something, I, I really do mean it. So, um, so yeah, I've been. Uh, our friends were also very enthusiastic that uh, your team sent us some some extra Ouroboros and that they were like, "Oh, that's my favorite brand! Like, you know, how do you know them?" And so, yeah, definitely, definitely got a super fan here. <laughs>
0: love hearing that. Nice.
1: Well, if you could start us off by just kind of tell us a little bit about you know yourself and Ouroboros. we you know, this episode we're going to fo- focus on your fundraising news, which we'll get into. But love to just kind of. Orient everyone, if they're not familiar with Ouroboros, a little bit about yourself, what stage you're at. That'd be super helpful. Of course. Yeah.
0: Uh, Ouroboros is a craft sparkling water company. We make sparkling waters from herbs, fruits and flowers. Uh, The idea is think of LaCroix or Polar or Waterloo or maybe a private label sparkling water of your choice and give it differentiated ingredients, uh, more interesting flavors, and hopefully peculiar but delightful uh, brand. So that is our product. We started uh, selling these products almost three years ago now, October of 2019. Um, and we just closed a series, a financing, uh, we'll be in about 5,000 stores by the end of this year. We're a nimble team of 15 and we have seven flavors out in retail. So I'm always trying to find interesting ways of quantifying the business. So that's, that's where we're at.
1: That's great. And some of the stores you are in, I think like Walmart, Safeway Albertsons, Sprouts. What are some of the other stores that you're in? Of course,
0: yes. You can find us nationwide at Sprouts. You can find us in eight states in Whole Foods. Uh, You can find us in a couple states in Walmart, surprisingly. Uh, You can find us in Fresh Time in the Midwest. Online, we're in uh, Thrive Market, Imperfect Produce, Misfit Foods, Fresh Direct if you're in the Northeast. We're in ShopRite in the Northeast. Uh, A few few stores for Publix in Florida. Um, So still primarily west of texas but working our way east uh harris teeter in the southeast but best way is of course to go to orabora.com and put in your zip code and it'll spit out a few stores near you
1: awesome very cool yeah i we are lucky enough to be one of the regions with a uh, walmart so actually on my way to get back home for this recording i was like i should stop and do a orabora store check just to make sure everything's looking good so looking good Thank on the you. shelf at the walmart in uh, in oregon so um, one store checked
0: <laughs> yeah no, we're, we love the pacific northwest we're, we're in whole foods in the pacific northwest we'll be in hagen's in the pacific northwest in a few months um in some walmarts up there so it, it is a good region for us
1: very nice and you have a you have a you can order direct online as well you have like a monthly club as well right that's right. Yeah,
0: yeah. So about thirty percent of our businesses online. Uh, some folks are subscribing to specific flavors like ginger, Meyer, lemon, or lemongrass, coconut, and other folks buy online when we do limited time flavors. So every other month we come out with a new flavor. Uh, honey pumpkin will come out in about a week. That Ooh. is our kind of fall seasonal. Think less pumpkin spice latte and more like a candied yam. We're trying to go kind mm. of counter in the in the fall blend.
1: Quick pause. After I recorded with Paul, I got a box in the mail with the honey pumpkin flavor that he's referencing, and it is absolutely delightful. I did not think that I was going to enjoy it. Just I'm not like a huge pumpkin person, but I don't know how they do it. It's magical. It's delightful. It somehow feels Harry Potter-esque, like I felt like I was transported to the harry potter world while i was drinking it in like all the best ways and it just has like perfect fall seasonal vibes and yeah i like shared it with more people because i wanted more people to know about it but then i was sad that like there was less of it in my fridge because i loved it so much so yeah just an absolutely delightful flavor and i had to keep you posted with the update on on giving that a try so and let's head back
0: Uh, in over the holidays, we do a chai cranberry flavor earlier this or late in the late summer, we did a blueberry wildflower flavor. So as we expand retail, we're trying to find more and more reasons to have an online base. So having unique flavors is a a fun way to stay connected to our super fan.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. So I'd love to tell us a little bit more about your recent fundraising news.
0: Of course. Yeah. So um, the idea of this business was I Uh, I was addicted to sparkling water is a nice way of saying it. I might say I was a sparkling water aficionado, but they effectively mean the same thing. (laughs) I was drinking a lot of sparkling water. Um, And I, I grew up in a home that didn't drink soda. So I was already drinking sparkling water before it was cool. And then my first few jobs after college, we had a fully stocked pantry with a bunch of products, you know, kettle potato chips and Jenny's ice cream and Justin's peanut butter and LaCroix sparkling water. And it struck me as odd that there were a lot of people drinking LaCroix, but no one really enjoying it. It was the most popular item by velocity, but the least popular item in terms of taste. So we're all drinking it. None of us are liking it. Why is that the case? That was the impetus for the business is can we make a sparkling water people really like, which that's a very low bar. Um, but I, I, I hope when you make a sparkling water, that people think, damn, that's the best sparkling water I've ever had. Um for us, this fundraise, the reason I gave you that background was, you know, these are really cash-intensive businesses to run, beverages in particular. Part of that is because it's so heavy. Part of that because the distribution is so thorny. Um, it's hard to get your cogs down while you're starting a new business in any way, but let alone one where it's a, it's a product, like a beverage. Um so for us I felt like this this fundraise was hugely validating that even even in a time where the economy is not necessarily as strong as it was in years past and fundraising has all but dried up almost we were able to get uh, a good amount of dollars together and have people say that hey we we think that this is a worthwhile use of your time so for for that reason alone uh it was a very validating fundraise and then of course every new dollar we get goes towards increasing our distribution building out our team Uh, you know, making our marketing more effective and hopefully more efficient and getting us closer and closer to being a profitable business.
1: Right, yeah, no, that's amazing. And if if I did my research right, I think you're at about $10 million in like lifetime funding for the business. That's Right,
0: yeah, yeah. We've we have raised more than 10 million dollars at this point, which is uh crazy to say. It, it, I always think about the um, the Bernie Sanders meme of him saying, You know, I'm once again asking for money. Um, where that <laughs> that has been a theme of running this business for sure is a lot of fundraising,
1: yeah, yeah. And I'm curious since a lot of our listeners have either they've never raised money or they may be thinking about going into their first raise, I'm kind of curious for you, like. What did you know when you started this business about fundraising, angel investing, venture capital, any of it? And like, and did you know you were going to have to raise money? Like, I'm kind of curious where you were at, you know, if you put yourself back in time when you started this.
0: Yeah, good question. So I, um, fortunately, my my background was a, a little bit finance adjacent, not at all with consumer. I was working at an investment firm called Saturn Five in Colorado, where we were for the most part at that point in time acquiring kind of unsexy cash flowing businesses, which food businesses are on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're generally sexy, cash-poor businesses where they are selling a product to consumers but not necessarily making a profit for a very long time. Um, so we were buying corporate cleaning, uh, a concrete manufacturer, a, a construction business, all sorts of things. What? So that led me to know a little bit of how QuickBooks worked. Um, it also led me to have some sort of like tangential knowledge of how venture capital works. I always recommend if someone wants to know probably more than anyone would ever need to know about venture capital investing, there's a great book by a guy named Brad Feld. Uh, The book's called Venture Deals. I've certainly read that a couple of times. And then other books that were helpful in the early innings that talked a little bit about fundraising and kind of starting a beverage business were, uh, what is it called? High Hanging Fruit is Mark Rampola's book about Zico coconut water. And Mission in a Bottle is Seth Goldman's book about honesty. So those are those are the books I read at the beginning to try to have some idea. I'll say if you're listening to this and you don't know how to raise a dollar, you are in good company. Um, and everyone that's ever raised the dollar at one point had never raised the dollar. So it's not as intimidating as it might seem.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. Um, and I'm curious when when you went to raise your first your first round, what did that look like? you know, from, from a business side, like what made you start to think like, okay, we're going to have to raise money. And then what were some of the first for, for, you know, for the first raise, I know, you know, now you've you know, you've done additional raises, but kind of going back in time. Yeah. What, what was the impetus? What did that kind of look like to be like, okay, I got to go raise money. Did you start reaching out to people, build your pitch deck? Like, what did it look like for your team? Just again, kind of a peek back in time.
0: Yeah, of course. So, so one, it was, it was all of those things. It was certainly, uh, Editing that pitch deck, I don't know, a thousand times every 10 minutes, it felt like, um, anytime a new piece of data came in, going back and editing that slide. Um, so actually the very first fundraise was to maybe the hardest group to get money from is actually my siblings. Um, I'm the youngest of five and I'm the youngest of 12 Greek cousins. So I raised $200,000 from in-laws, parents, all four of my siblings, seven of those 11 Greek cousins, and all pulled together. That was $200,000 with some of my own money as well. That was way back in the summer of 2019. And at that point, we had no sales. We had a, a name. I had like very preliminary canned designs, and I had my trusty soda stream filled with product. But um, now I look back and realize, oh my gosh, one, I made that way more complicated than it needed to be. Um, I I should have raised it differently. I probably shouldn't have raised from all those family members, to be honest, because now they give me a hard time and it's added some pressure to my life in a lot of ways, um, for better or for worse. The second thing was I just didn't even know how to value this idea because it was just an idea in my head and on a pitch deck, but it wasn't a real company. So that was the first fundraise. This, the, the first one that was, I guess, technically the second fundraise that actually involved like angel investors and I had a lawyer and all sorts of things was the next year in the summer of 2020, where we went out and raised $550,000 from uh, mostly angels. And then we did a third fundraise, a seed round in the spring of 2021 for just over $2 okay. million. Dollars, and then finally the series A. So a long way of saying... It has gotten more complex as it's gone along. Uh, it has gone from being blood relatives to folks I, I didn't know at all. Some people I only know in insofar as we had a few conversations on Zoom or in person to fundraise. Um, and of course, along the way, the business has gotten more complex and our revenue has grown and our distributors have grown and our employees have grown. So that's a long rambling answer is to say that each fundraise has felt very different than the last and i think uh at different stages investors are looking for kind of different checkpoints
1: yeah for sure that's super interesting to hear about those those different raises and the different pieces you were at i'm for the for the first raise where you were talking with angel investors was that something where you were Going out and pitching to individual angels? Did you try to go find groups? Did you focus on people specific to CPG? Like, I'm curious what the strategy was or if you figured out a strategy as you were going along.
0: So, the best advice I got so, uh, the latter, I did, I felt like I figured out the strategy as I went along. The best advice I got was anytime you get a no, ask someone for a very specific thing. So if they say, "Hey, you know, sparkling water is not for me," or more, uh, more pointed, "Hey, I don't think you're the right guy for this business," or "I don't like your lavender cucumber flavor," whatever it is, um, I would then turn around and say, "Hey, totally understand. Great to meet you. You know, I hope our paths cross in the future. Do you know someone who has this background who might be interested?" And I think if you ask, like a lot of people ask, like, "Hey, can you introduce me to more people?" and usually the response is like, "Yeah, let me give it some thought," and then you're never going to hear from that person again. Whereas if you say like, hey, can you introduce me to someone named Samantha in Cincinnati? Now, all of a sudden, they're really thinking of, okay, do I know someone named Samantha in Cincinnati? Um, So specifically for us, I can think of plenty of investors. I said, hey, totally understand. We're not the right fit. Do you know anyone with a beverage background on the West Coast who I could talk to? And all of a sudden, someone pops to mind and they introduce me to that person. So I'll say in that $500,000 fundraise with all angel investors, there were folks in that round that have invested in massive, massive food and beverage businesses. And the only reason they talked to me is because it was like a connection of a connection of a connection. So that was a huge learning moment. I'll give a quick shout out to a group called The Angel Group. Um, Adam Spriggs is the gentleman that runs it. He's based in Boulder. They were great. You know, I think I pitched like 18 people at one time and four of them ended up investing. And then those four people introduced me to 10 more people. So it is unfortunately, well, I guess I'll say fortunately and unfortunately, a part of my everyday life now is just constantly meeting folks that invest in food and beverage businesses. I also had another help in that I did the SKU accelerator in Austin, which you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to raise money at the end of it, but you do meet a ton of food and beverage angel investors, and all of them are well-connected. As I'm sure you know, this is, ends up being a pretty small industry at the end of the day. So eventually you'll meet most people.
1: Yeah, I was act- I was going to ask you how you felt that the the SKU Accelerator, which we, we're a big fan of SKU as Startup CPG. They're really they're awesome partners, and we've always heard good things about their program. But I was curious about how that kind of impacted your fundraising journey. So it sounds like it was a positive impact.
0: It was. I always joke that I, you know, it was a again a weird time economically, like the end of that the skew accelerators from January of 2020 to May of 2020. If you'll you'll remember, May of 2020 was like <laughs> madness. You know, yep, everyone was locked inside. We didn't know uh, what was happening. We all watched Fauci for 23 hours a day. It felt like. So it wasn't necessarily the best time to raise money. I certainly thought though, yeah, I I did meet investors directly through SKU and I met plenty of investors that probably thought in the back of their minds, like this guy's, you know, not that smart. He's never run a food or beverage business, but at least he did this accelerator. He must've learned something. So it was helpful probably more than anything just to teach me how this industry works, um, not even in just a cursory way, in a pretty in-depth way, but more than that, connect me with folks that can uh, kind of validate that, hey, this is a real business and a real entrepreneur, and they're interested in, you know, impacting this specific category, in our case, Beverage.
1: Right. I'm also curious how Shark Tank impacted your fundraising, if that really got you in front of, I'm assuming it got you in front of, you know, a lot of eyeballs. Also, you know, uh maybe remind us which uh which season so that if people haven't watched that episode I, I love it it's uh, it's super fun to to watch so I hope everyone goes and watches it but then also curious you know how it how it impacted the the fundraising journey
0: Of course yeah so funny enough so uh tw- season 12 episode 11 that is our Shark Tank episode I think we're the third segment of the four segments um, that was a crazy, crazy turn of events, almost from the beginning of our business. So in April of 2020, I got an email from someone claiming to be a Shark Tank producer. I, of course, thought, oh, this is just a friend. Time time on their hand during the pandemic. There's no way this is a real person. Uh, and it, lo and behold, it was a real person. Four months later, after much back and forth, uh, Maddie and I, Maddie is my wife and co-founder, we were out in Las Vegas, locked in a hotel room for nine days before filming for Shark Tank. Funny enough, during those nine days is when we were closing that angel round I was just referring to. So we, even though we were about to go on Shark Tank, we had just raised $500,000 um, and then went, out, went down to Shark Tank. So I, I would say it probably uh helps a little bit in our current fundraising and that people feel like okay who's this guy on zoom and they do a little research and they see you know me making a fool of myself in front of some high-powered billionaires that's probably helpful um it was certainly helpful in that like we had to know our business so intimately well before going on the show um if you've watched the show you know that if someone gets like a single number wrong the sharks are not uh too shy to rip them apart so didn't want that to happen thankfully it didn't happen Um, and it it did give us just like a larger community, frankly, like a huge community of email subscribers that found us from the show. When we go into new stores, the retailers love knowing that there's like this ongoing, uh, show, like there are plenty of reruns and it's just a blast. Who doesn't like talking about Shark Tank? So if there's one thing you have to talk about for the rest of your life, I am so proud that it's Shark Tank. That's so cool. (laughs) Um, I don't mind that at all.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love it. And I don't believe you got a deal on the show though. Is that right?
0: So we, we actually, we did get a deal on the show. It was with Robert Hershovic. Um I signed a bunch of paperwork saying I can't talk about it, but suffice it to say, the fact that I'm saying it like this, you can probably insert the blanks. But long as saying, we did get a deal while on air. Um, and I'll only say positive things about Shark Tank for respect of their lawyers who spent a lot of time trolling the internet.
1: <laughs> Love it. Okay, that, that makes sense. That uh, That's the connection I was trying to make there. So, okay um, or that my brain was trying to make. And for the, for the, for, as, as you've gone through this fundraising process to another question that people talk about a lot is valuation. Is that something yeah. that you like educated yourself on? And then is it, you came up when you work with investors, you start to kind of naturally come toward a valuation number. Like how have you navigated, I guess, the valuation conversation and any tips for navigating that for people new to this type of conversation?
0: Yeah, great question. So of course, it's, I'll start by saying it's just so subjective. Um, Best example of this is, you know, I ask you, like, what is a car worth? You're like, well, some cars are worth a quarter million dollars. Some cars are worth $250. Um, So we can look at it, it has four tires and an axle and an engine uh, and seatbelts. And it looks pretty similar. There's just a massive, massive difference. Sim- it's not that's not a ridiculous analogy that I, I can think of, uh, beverage businesses that are being valued like a Lamborghini and others that are being, you know, valued like a used car, 25 years old in your, your garage. So, um, for us, I found what was the most useful was one straight up asking other beverage folks. I knew that were a couple stages ahead of us, uh, mostly because the valuation typically changes based on the round of money you're raising for us, you know, our, our, angel round, people weren't asking me for trailing 12 months revenue. They knew, hey, this is more of an idea than it is a business. For our Series A, on the other hand, yeah, they were asking for trailing 12 months revenue. What was our net sales? What was our you know, freight as a percent of net revenue? What could we get our cost of goods sold down to in the future? So all of a sudden, the conversations get more complex. So I would say when someone's on the very early end of fundraising, it's typically really helpful to just pick a cap amount and use a convertible note. I generally prefer safes. Particularly, if you know you're not going to stack the safes, like if you're just going to do one safe round, then pick a high cap, defend it as best you can, and know that you're selling more so the future dream than you are the current business. If you're on the later stages of fundraising, call it like a series A or beyond, there are like really good sources of truth out there. I'll just say for us, it's pretty normal right now in Beverage if you are doing, say, between five and $15 million of sales generally those businesses are being valued at three and a half to five X trailing 12 month sales. So if your trailing 12 month sales is $10 million, your business could be worth on the low end, 35 million on the high end, 50 million. Um, and that, that is just like a good rule of thumb for kind of fast moving consumer goods, beverage, snacks, anything that's turning more than three or four units per scoop per store per week. Um, so there, there are plenty of ways of finding that data. Another good source is like, look at the publicly traded businesses that sell similar products. And you can see how they value themselves just every day on the NASDAQ or on the New York Stock Exchange. So hopefully that's helpful. Or the best way is I usually say, talk to 10 investors and ask them and pick the middle number.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very helpful. I'm also wondering from like a, it sounds like you worked with a, an attorney on your, once you got past the like friends and family round, like, was that, was it kind of complex, like setting up like a cap table and like, did, you know, were you able to like get a referral for an attorney, any, and in, just any like recommendations on like kind of being ready for a fundraise and like the legal structure and everything you need to have curious about how navigating that went.
0: Yeah, of course. So if is again, if it's one of the early fundraises where you're using a safe note, the best part about them is that you don't need an attorney. Um, and it's like a simple two signatures and that's it. And you can down Y Combinator has a version on the internet for free. You can go download it, and insert your details. Um, for us, once we became a Delaware C Corp, and once we were doing kind of our first institutional round last year, yes, we, we got an attorney. It was a referral from one of our investors. Um, there are a lot of really great CPG, uh, law firms. I'll say like Foster Garvey is one that we use often. Um, Lewindon Gianuzzi is a big one in food and beverage. Uh, I'm blanking on Chuck's firm. Uh, Long way of saying there's four or five that you'll meet at Expo East and Expo West. And that's because they have a pretty built out food and beverage practice. And some of those folks have a built out food and beverage practice, not just on the corporate side, but also in terms of like FDA and packaging things. And some of them are just corporate law firms that are good at all corporate law, but they don't necessarily know food and beverage. So long way of saying It until you are doing a major institutional round where someone is investing several million dollars at once, there's no need to spend six figures on attorney fees. You can probably get away with, you know, three to five hours in the early ones.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. But so it sounds like you did do a switch to C-Corp, became a Delaware Corp at some point um, along this process, though. We
0: did. Yeah, we were an LLC and then we became a Delaware C-Corp. And then that was because we had some institutions looking to invest that generally they won't invest if you're not a C corp. So that led to me calling our first attorney and I've been paying attorneys money ever since.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Um, and so for this series a round, can you tell us a little bit about like what the structure of that looks like? Like, I believe the round was led by like CD capital and then you had some participation from like angels and, and a few other places. I wonder if you can kind of tell us like how that, that works, what that looked like.
0: Of course. Yeah. Generally in series a rounds, at least half Of the round is from one firm, so half this round was from City Capital. Um, And if you're listening to that, that's City spelled S-I-D-D-H-I Capital. Um, They do that uh, like that's just one way of kind of validating that they are locked in. Is they're going to do half the round. So if you're raising ten million dollars, then you're looking for a lead investor that's willing to raise put in five. If you're raising six million, you're looking for someone that's willing to put in three. It's it kind of the the function it serves is that every other small investor can kind of defer that the large investor did their homework. So in this case, yeah, City had their own attorneys that were validating every scrap of paper that I sent to them. And it, it gave all the other investors some uh peace of mind of like, okay, this entrepreneur is not just picking a valuation out of thin air. There was some negotiation between City and Ourobora. Um, and great, there were some attorneys that were used to validate all this information. So A lead investor is amazing for that reason. And then of course the other benefits are typically the lead investor will take a board seat and it's a little like a marriage where you're you're finding someone that you don't mind talking to, you know, every week for the next three to five years.
1: Yeah, that's when we had a, Wayne Wu from VMG, he used a lot of uh, marriage and, and dating analogies of I'm like, because sure. uh, uh, he was like, you know, when you when you're going to get married, you don't start dating two weeks before um, and those kind of things. So it's uh, it's funny to hear the analogy come up in. But it, it's definitely very relevant.
0: Totally, totally accurate. Yep. Yeah. the uh, and I'll say similar to the marriage analogies is like I would almost say that it's more intense than a marriage because there's not at least with marriage, there is a formal process for divorce in this country there's not really a formal process for splitting up with your big investment firm. So long way of saying like, it's, it might even be more intense than a marriage, but I, mm-hmm. I really, really love working with City. To Wayne's point, we've known City for two years. So if you're thinking a year from now, you might want an institutional fundraise, but you don't know any institutional investors, like you better get get moving because sometimes it takes a year of updates, calls, decks to get to that point.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask like how you kind of you know, I assumed that you, you didn't just, you know, meet, meet right before. So like, what did that kind of look like? You know, did you start, did you meet a lot of institutional investors like at shows or did you do some outreach? Was it connections from early angel investors? Like how did you kind of start establishing a lot of these relationships? And then what also did you do to kind of maintain them so that you have, so that it isn't just a, you know, reaching out right before you're trying to raise a round, but how did you kind of stay in touch with everybody? And so that when you were ready, they were ready too.
0: Yeah, gosh, it's always, a, it's like a really interesting balance of how do you inform without annoy, without annoying people? Um, I'm also the youngest of five siblings. So I'm always trying to figure out how do I even open my mouth without being annoying? Is it, is a uh, <laughs> overall struggle for me in general, but I'll say for us, you know, I, Yes, I did meet a lot of these investors at shows or uh, at various like pitch slams or other industry events. There were a couple of years there where no one was doing any events where meeting these folks was harder because you had to like get them on Zoom. Um, the opposite of that is like everyone was sitting at home. So it was easier to meet people because people had more free time. Um, for us, I'll say when we started our fundraise, we sent I sent out our first email with a attached deck to 49 food and beverage investors and those first forty-nine were only investors that I thought could theoretically write half the round, could could invest several million dollars into Ouroboros. From that forty-nine, you know, it led to probably twenty-something follow-up conversations, ten data rooms, five, you know, heavy interest, and kind of went from there. So, long way of saying, uh, there are certainly lists out there. If you're listening to this, you know, reach out. I, I could certainly give you a couple of names. What's great is how the investor community is pretty small. So, if you talk to a couple of firms that really like you. Same thing I said earlier, like end the conversation by saying, "Hey, here are three or four other similar investors I should talk to that invest in snacks, candy, flour, whatever it is that you're selling." Um, so for us with City, I'll say, "Yeah, I met Melissa Pacina, the managing partner of City, in July of 2020, and she didn't, you know, give us a dollar until the summer of 2022. So that was two years. Um, we used them for operations, so they had even further context into our business." If that wasn't the case, that we certainly have a monthly uh, investor update that I send out. And some of the people on that investor update are active investors, and some of them are prospective investors in the future. It does mean that you can't share all the intimate details, um, but it's a good way of kind of keeping people along for the journey without annoying them. Is there just one of many BCC people that you can tell about your business traction?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so did you, did you kind of focus on finding the the lead investor first. And then I know we've we've done some some programming with the Gangels group and and we've talked with their team and you know, they're they're very open with, you know, we're, we're not going to lead the round, but once you've got someone who's the lead, then reach out to us. And so I'm curious if that's how some of the other the other members of the round, if you kind of figured out that City was going to work with you first and then you start to reach out to fill the rest of the round. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So that that comment from the person from Gangels, that's pretty common. There is a huge group of people that they have no interest in leading around. They don't have the time to be on a board. They want to keep getting good deals. So it's you've probably heard this on the podcast before, but uh, it is certainly true that once you have a lead investor, the rest of it should be theoretically a lot easier because they know, okay, got it. An institutional investor committed to several million dollars. Because the other piece is, it's not just about like um, actually filling the round with money or like filling the round with knowledge or with like the right partner. Some of it is a little bit of an early investor that's only investing, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars into a several million dollar round. They have to worry wait a second, if I wire my two hundred grand and then this entrepreneur doesn't convince anyone else to invest, I have this kind of chicken and egg problem where now I was only interested in the business insofar as I knew they could raise this whole round and I'm not interested if they can't. So mm-hmm. it's not what a lead investor just so you don't have anyone kind of playing chicken there wondering, shoot, uh, should I actually wire this money? So certainly always say, Hey, go out and find a lead and then worry about everyone else after the fact.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense. And we've also had, I think, I think I've, I've, I can't even count the number of times that I've heard. And I've seen that fundraising is a full-time job. And so I'm wondering for you having you know raised multiple rounds at this point, like what does it mean for you and the business operationally when you're fundraising? Like, what does it look like day to day? Is it, you know, have you had to figure out how certain tasks that maybe you did before doing fundraising got, you know, went to someone else? Like, what does it look like operationally to to do a fundraise and, and have enough time to be meeting people and sending these monthly updates and those kind of things?
0: Yeah, it really helps. So I'll say, um, first point of advice there is like if you don't have, if you're just starting your business and you don't have a co-founder, you might want to go get one. Um, it's it's helpful to have just like redundancies more than anything. So I'll say, although I did start this business with my co-founder and wife Maddie, for the first couple of years we weren't really co-founders in that we needed to pay our rent, so she was like working her other job um, and like putting food on the table. So. I'm grateful for that. The negative of that was, oh, shoot, all of the investors only met me. It's not like there were two people for them to have a relationship with. And if they weren't talking to me, then there was no one they could be talking to. And the opposite was true. Like all the functions of the business were just done by me. As we grew out our team, you know, we, we certainly could not have done this Series A without the team that we have, like executing every day, getting orders out, putting up social posts, filling cans, procuring ingre- ingredients, all of the things we do every day. Um, so it, it is certainly time-consuming. I think maybe the best example of this is a company that's raised a ton of money is Super Coffee. And I think the brothers, it's Jim, Jake, and Jordan. And I think Jim pretty much only focuses on investor relations, which um, of course, all of them probably do a little bit of everything. But the fact that those three brothers started a business and one of the three things that one of them is focused on is investor relations should tell you all you need to know about how involved fundraising is. Um, so... Long way of saying it is certainly time consuming. There are ways to make it less time consuming. I'll say if at the beginning of your fundraise, you have like a document that I always think of this as like a why you should not invest document, and you outline all of the risks and try to put on your investor hat, you can just send that to folks and eliminate a lot of the back and forth. Like, hey, here's our deck. Here's the email with uh, all, all of the things we discussed. Here's our diligence room with all of those documents. And finally, here's a document of why you shouldn't invest. And a lot of times that eliminates some back and forth. So you can worry about, you know, the day to day of running your business, but no doubt about it, it's time consuming.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Is there any way that you also like stay organized as far as like, this is who I've reached out to, or this is who I need to reach out to. I'm, you know, I'm kind of an organization nerd. So I am like curious if there's any way that you kind of stay organized with like all that outreach and staying in touch with people.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. I I set so many, so many reminders in my inbox of, you know, anytime someone says, Hey, why don't you reach out in the fall? Or, Hey, why don't we talk next month? Or, Hey, why don't you send me something ending next week? I, I do exactly that. If they say, how about next year? I send them something on January 1st. If they say, how about in the fall? I send it to them on September 25th. Like, um, that's one way I stay organized just in the communication piece. And then for us, like, yeah, we had a notion page of every food and beverage investment firm that we knew of and tracked them stage by stage. Like who opened the first email? who interacted with the deck, who was interested in learning the terms, who wanted a data room all the way until the end. And on this beautiful spreadsheet at the end, it was like wired money. Um, So that is one way to stay organized, but uh, I'm sure there's a hundred better ways that we didn't know about.
1: Yeah, interesting. And did you you find like a data room That you liked better. That's another question that we get a lot of just about data rooms. And is that something that you built out on your own or did your team participate in that? I
0: had an awesome, helpful employee that uh, he's actually since left to go to business school, tragically, because he was great. Um, His name is Rex. He helped build out like, great, let's get them cash flow statement, uh, working model, balance sheet, all of the kind of like necessary financial documents and then i filled in all the sales marketing org chart things um generally there's like the same 15 requests for data rooms you'll get investors that ask for the occasional one-off weird thing uh in terms of functionally like i, I would just use DocSend. that's what we've used for quote-unquote data rooms you know it's not as secure as others but it's relatively cheap um, but that that's how we put together and then when any anyone asked for a data room, we just copied and pasted
1: and gave them the 15 documents. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. I'm also curious from because I've I've listened to you, I was mentioning to you before before we started recording recording, but I've listened to other interviews with you. One of you, my favorite is uh with uh with Ali on in the sauce and yeah. you talked some about how you kind of stay motivated by staying in touch with customers. And that that kind of makes me think about fundraising and staying motivated because I feel like you, you don't you don't found a business necessarily because what you want to do is like full time fundraising and right. due diligence documents like those things aren't motivational. And so like, how do you stay motivated through a lot of these things that like, sure, they're going to grow your business, but they may not be the most fun things in the world. Like, how do you keep that motivation up? And how do you stay in touch with other pieces of the business, like so that you don't just kind of get bogged down in legal documents?
0: No, great question. And I think I don't know anyone that started a food or beverage business specifically so that (laughs) they could like be involved with lawyers. No offense to lawyers. I'm constantly bashing lawyers. Um, My sister and parents are lawyers. But I'll say for me, so the the podcast you're referencing where I, I mentioned, hey, I try to You know, every day at some point, interact with a customer or several customers, whether that's reading the DMs on our Instagram or the emails to our inbox or the reviews on our review platform. Um, And it's just kind of a good motivator of like, okay, what am I actually building here? Like, we're building a product that people like buying. And some days, an entire day can go by where I can kind of forget that. You know, if you're like organizing trucks or opening up a new warehouse, you kind of forget, like, wait, what's the point of, what's the existential point of this thing? Same thing with fundraising. I would say, Yes, there is a lot of minutia, legal docs, diligence rooms, spreadsheets, models, you know, justifying your valuation that is not that fun. But I mean, I can think of some investors that I've checked in with them every quarter for the last 10 quarters, and they just invested in my business. Like, that is an existentially fun thing. i like, okay, they weren't a believer in 2019. They weren't a believer in 2020. They were not a believer in 2021. And in 2022, they wired us cash. Um, and I'm sure that'll be the case in 2023 or 2024 with other investors that, hey, we've been talking now for five years. We've gone out and said the things we were going to do, and we've done them. Like you can see, we're a more trustworthy person. And to Wayne Wu's point, like that's that's a little more like a dating relationship when you get into the three to five year span of wow, we've known each other for a very long time, and I'm still here selling this peculiar, delightful sparkling water. So that's one way I stayed grounded to the business was. What a fundraise is, is you convincing someone else that your business is worth their time, which I always joke like this whole job is selling, whether you're selling to consumers or distributors or retailers um, or potential new employees, perhaps the largest group you're selling to is people that are giving you their hard earned dollars Um, and to say, hey, it is worth it for you to wire me several hundred thousand dollars that you made elsewhere or that your firm collected elsewhere for my business like there's nothing more validating than that. Oh my gosh, like we convinced them that we were worth their time and now we're worth their money. So that that is the the best part of fundraising is you get more and more people, you know, on quote unquote your team.
1: I love that. That's a that's a really really cool perspective. I'm also curious about some of the like um you know, you mentioned some of the timing pieces but like, you know, from the okay, we need to raise a series A to all the investors are Everybody said yes to signing the documents to funds being wired and hitting your bank account. Like what, what's kind of the, like the timing, you know, any of the pieces there? Cause I feel like we kind of think, oh, an investor says, yes, the money will just magically appear, but there's some like (laughs) logistics and things to happen. So I'm curious about a little bit of that, the timing for everything to come all the way into, you know, into the bank account.
0: Of course. Yeah. I'll say, so one thing I haven't referenced that's pretty important is we, we talked about valuation quickly. So again, I'm going to talk as if we're talking about a priced round. So if it's a priced round um, where, and by that, I mean, you and the investors are deciding the business is worth X before the money comes in, and it's worth X plus the amount of money I'm raising after the money comes in, sometimes pre-money and post-money valuations, respectively. Um, in those instances, there's generally a dance at the beginning where you have the first call, there's a second call, maybe a third, fourth, fifth and a diligence, a data room, sometimes an NDA sign, sometimes not, eventually that firm will either say, no, we're not interested, or yes, we're interested, here is a term sheet. And that term sheet says a lot of things. Most importantly, it says, here's what we're valuing your business at. And here's the amount we would like to invest in this broader raise. Um, generally, from the moment of that term sheet, to closing the round on the short end is four weeks, on the long end is eight weeks. Those four to eight weeks are your time to one, get all of their diligence requests, and two, round up all of those follow-on investors for us. You know, folks like angels that they want to know exactly what the terms are uh, from the lead investor, and the terms are set in the term sheet. Uh, so, long, I, I hope that's helpful. But that's that's our quick um, like like quick how to of term sheet. You know s- several weeks before the term sheet, four to eight weeks from the term sheet, close the round, and then all the money comes in on that day.
1: Yeah, that's very helpful. I'm I'm also wondering you gained some, from the looks of it, some really awesome new board members from this recent round. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about like about your board and about some of the new members that you have on the Ouroboro board.
0: Yeah, of course, and that's a good segue. So often, uh, a term sheet will describe many things that the the investor is saying you need to do. Like, hey, you need to tell us about you know any liabilities in the business, any lawsuits involved in the business, any of X, Y, or Z. And usually, it's included in there. Like, and we get one of your board seats. Well, we didn't have a board before this fundraise or effectively, we did, but it was just me. Um, so we didn't have board meetings. We just had everyday subconscious. Um, but <laughs> for, for this one. City Capitol said, great, we're gonna form a board of five seats, one of which we will hold, two of which Aura will hold. And then we named directors for the other two seats. Um so that was that was great. Cause one, I wanted a board. I, I wanted that like board governance. Uh, I wanted folks that I could ask for advice and not feel like I'm like keeping them from their kids' soccer game or harassing them with questions. I feel like no, they're they are on our team, they're on our board. Generally, they've invested a lot of money if they're on your board, or they're getting some sort of compensation in equity for being on the board. Uh, Those individuals right now on our board are Melissa Ficina, who's a managing partner of City Capital, who I referenced earlier. Uh, Clayton Christopher, he has been a long-time believer in the brand. And to your point of this is more like a marriage, you know, everyone on our board, I've known at least two years, in some instances, closer to three. So Clayton Christopher, I met way back in January of 2020. Um, he's started a few beverage businesses, deep Eddy vodka, sweet leaf tea, Waterloo sparkling water, and invested in a lot of businesses through his old firm, Kabu Venture Partners. Uh, and then Brad Barnhorn, who had a beverage business many, many years ago, and then has since served on the boards of chameleon, cold brew, health warrior, uh, Kavita and a few other kind of food or beverage businesses that have done very well. So all three of them, Melissa, Clayton, and Brad have a ton of experience in CPG and as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I had no experience a few years ago. So I am I am in the business of trying to take from their experience and learn a few things. That way I don't have to learn them painfully myself.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. That that sounds like a really awesome board to have access to and 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 maybe uh maybe more interesting than your your former board of uh board of one uh just bouncing ideas off yourself. So certainly more effective
0: and definitely more interesting, yes.
1: <laughs> um I'm curious, like, will you, since this round just happened, like, will you go forward having like quarter quarterly board meetings or you like how will that kind of work to interact with
0: your board members? It, it varies for various companies. I'll say for us, yes, quarterly board meetings. So we had one in August. We'll have one at the end of this month. We'll have, you know, we kind of have one at the end of every quarter. So we'll have one at this month reviewing Q3 and then going over what our plans are for the next two quarters, Q4 and Q1 of 23. Um. But I will say, you know, I probably talk to some member of City's broader team probably every three hours, which is a ridiculous comment, but that's just true. So I am very intimately involved with City Capital. Um, I talk to Clayton at least every couple of weeks. I talk to Brad at least every week. So I might be on the one end of the spectrum of like very communicative with the board. Um, some of that might just be because of our company's youth or You know, a lot of our decisions are like big decisions, it feels like. I think if we were maybe three or four years older, I'd probably talk to them less and we'd have kind of more levels of bureaucracy. But we have a pretty small team and I'm pretty new to this whole thing. So for us, I'm talking to a board member every week at the very minimum.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense. And that's that's very helpful to hear. I'm you know, you mentioned earlier a little bit about how you're going to use these funds, but I'm wondering if you can share a little bit, you know, are you hiring specific people and like does is this kind of helping you from i know you're not only in the in the natural channel stores you've got some walmart safeway albertsons now but kind of curious how some of the the funds will that be to kind of help extend your your reach in the in the other channels like what's it kind of going to look like to to use these funds
0: yeah of course so first and foremost you know we'll end this year in about five thousand stores our goal is to end next year in just shy of 10,000 stores. So effectively doubling our store count, uh, which we, we doubled our store count last year to this year, but it was just fewer stores because the numbers were smaller. So for us, we have avoided slotting fees thus far because um, we mostly were in natural where it's a little bit it's a little bit cheaper to get on the shelf. Um, so conventional is more expensive. We will have to pay more to get on those shelves and we'll have to pay more to stick out because there's just more products in a conventional store than there is in a natural store. Um... That's the primary use of these funds is expanding distribution. Next is yes, we've built out a team of 15 people. Some of them were hired with these funds, uh, and then there'll be more we hire from these funds. And then maybe finally, I'll I'll say, like, yeah, it, it is our goal to make this into a profitable beverage business. So there's a lot of like structural changes we need to make with this money, whether that is changes in how we market whether that's changes in how we manufacture our product. Like there's a lot of ways w- if we invest more in inventory such that we can get, you know, greater economies of scale. So long way of saying we're going to product, sell more product, more places with more team members and hopefully add a profit. That's our goal with these funds.
1: Yeah. And from at least from some other I- interviews that I've listen to, it sounds like you've been seeing really great velocities outside of the natural channel as well so far. Is that, is that right? That's
0: right. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, today in those 5,000 stores, most of them are still natural, but the ones that are not, there was certainly a, uh, some, some of those investors I referenced earlier that I've been talking to for years, and they've never given me a dollar or never invested a dollar in the brand. Um, I'd say a big point of criticism we've gotten is, Hey, you know, said another way, like is, is someone in Kansas going to like your lavender cucumber water as much as someone in California? Um, which is a totally reasonable critique of the brand. Like we're selling sparkling water at a premium. It's less expensive than juice and cold brew and functional sodas for sure, but it's still more expensive than other sparkling water products. Uh, and I think what we're trying to prove is, Hey, someone's income does not dictate their interest in new flavors. Um, and we, have, we haven't we have seen any sort of correlation between income and interest in flavors. We have plenty of consumers that found us on Shark Tank. And I always mention Shark Tank because Shark Tank is, if you look at the audience numbers, it's actually a pretty good like microcosm of the country. It's pretty fairly distributed by race, by income, by age, by geography, um, which is great because we say, hey, We've got all these customers that found us on Shark Tank and they keep repeat purchasing and they're not necessarily your Whole Foods Arrowon shopper. They might shop at Kroger or uh, Walmart in the middle of nowhere and they come and they buy our lavender cucumber sparkling water. So for us, that is certainly the biggest objective of 2023 is expand into these conventional stores away from the coasts and away from the natural channel. And perform well, and if we can do those two things, we'll be uh, well on our way.
1: Yeah, that's that's really exciting, and that's really interesting. You you mentioned before, like Seth Goldman's book "Mission in a Bottle," and we've had the the opportunity to have Seth on the show uh, a well, few maybe. times, and it was actually something that he mentioned about beverages. And we we had a question uh, a question come in for him about you know recessions or like how consumers respond, and he was like, a lot of times what we saw. At Honest Tea was that, you know, someone might not buy a new car, but when they go and they still want a treat of, you know, they want a tasty beverage, they still want a different flavor, they're still going to reach for, you know, they're still going to reach for that, that tea or that, you know, fun, new, delightful, um, sparkling water or something, you know, even when, you know, uh, even when they might not be reaching for other items on on the grocery shelf or other bigger purchases, so it, that's very interesting to kind of hear what you've what you've seen expanding into other channels.
0: Totally, yeah, yeah. It's it's always a morbid thought to say this, but the truth is, most fast moving consumer packaged goods that are you know less than twenty dollars do extremely well in a recession. And it's exactly what you just said. Yeah, they might not be buying a new car or going on vacation or renting uh, a vacation property anytime soon. But yeah, if they're if they're going to be eating at home more and not eating out, well, then they go to the grocery store more frequently. So that was mm-hmm. certainly the data we could see from like 2008, 2009. I, whether we're going to another recession or not, I don't know. But I I certainly have no recession fears of our business for that reason. And to be honest... Consumers are shopping cross-channel more than they ever have. So there's not these big walls in between natural and conventional and club the way that we used to have, where a Costco shopper is a Costco shopper and nothing else. Folks shop at Whole Foods, Walmart, and Costco, sometimes all in the same week.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else coming up this year or soon that you want to share about that um, that people that people should know and keep an eye out for?
0: I will say, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about some fun we're having on the Internet. Um, we. We have this uh, amazing community of customers that enjoy weird frog memes and like talking about, you know, uh, what kind of costume you should wear on your thumb for Halloween. So I'll I'll preface it by saying this might not be for everyone. There's kind of some some weirdos that follow us on the internet who we love, myself included. Um, Something we started a few months ago that we're going to keep doing is a couple times a year, we're doing a secret menu where it is... It's not our normal limited time flavor drops that we announce to everyone. It is a secret email you get. If you've, you have you not know, joined our email club, if you've purchased from us in the past and we send you an email saying like, Hey, we're selling this unique flavor. You won't find it in stores. You won't find it on our website. You'll only find it at this link. And it's been a lot of fun. So in November, we have two of those flavors coming out. Uh, you can sign on on our website to see if you qualify for that. There's like a little badge that will show that you are uh, in the club that gets the secret menu. And if you're not, shoot me a note and I'll take a look for you. Um, but that's, that's the quick thing I'll plug is our secret menu is coming out in November. Uh, one of the flavors is as weird as we have ever gone. And I'll leave it at that.
1: (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Everyone should definitely go to Ourobora.com. That's A-U-R-A-B-O-R-A.com. And then also on Instagram, you can follow at Drink Ourobora and definitely go check it out. And then there's a store locator. You can find um, some water. It's delightful um, and peculiar water near you. And uh, yeah, this was just so fun. I first found Ouroboros through the Social Nature program because Social Nature is a supporter of Star of CBG. Then I became part of Social Nature's community. Then I got a coupon for Ouroboros, became a fan. And so and that that's been a while now. So this is kind of fun to get to come full circle and get to um, get to actually, actually talk to you. And we got to meet very briefly at Expo East, uh, in the last couple of weeks. So that was super I fun.
0: No, you found us for social nature. I love hearing that. I'm glad that it worked. Jesse, where, where in the Midwest did you grow up?
1: Uh, I actually, I grew up in Eastern Washington,
0: Eastern Washington. Okay. I used, yeah. uh, my father's from the West and he also says coupon where he says the letter. Q. <laughs> I was, I was taking a stab to see if I might be right. Uh, amazing. Okay. You,
1: you were close. I, I'm, I grew up on a farm. So like more, more, uh, more kind of similar vibes to Eastern Washington.
0: My father's from a farm in Iowa. So we'll, we'll call it, it's a, a farm way of saying coupon, but long way of saying we did that social nature program like two years ago and I had no idea if it would work. So thank you for validating that it worked.
1: Yeah, it worked on, it worked on me for sure. So, well, hey. um, Well, this was so fun. Really appreciate you sharing some insights. Fundraising is such an intimidating process. And so just having you walk us through this and share more insight, and uh, it it means a lot. And I think that our community is going to find this super valuable. So just so appreciate it. And I know, you know, you've got everyone at Startup CBG is cheering for Team Ouroboros, and I think we're all going (laughs) to definitely keep our fridges stocked. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my gosh,
0: I'll come back anytime. I appreciate it. And if anyone has any questions, my email is just paul at
1: orabora.com. I'll do my best to reply quick. Awesome, thank you so much. See ya. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation and I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just wanna say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and maybe even leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts if you aren't yet in our slack community of founders and experts we'd love to see you there you can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars databases the blog the magazine and virtual and in-person events and if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music which i do every single time make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our Startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer. And on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.